If you're a local government enthusiast who's looking for fresh conversations over a hot cup of morning coffee or tea or while you're driving or walking the dog, you do you. You're in the right place. Welcome to the Local Gov Cafe podcast, hosted by Susan Gardner and Ann Mitchell. This podcast is devoted to having conversations that matter, covering the full menu of municipal topics. You'll discover guests who bring insight and inspiration to the issues that drive and challenge communities. We'll be talking with leaders in policy, practice, consulting, and academia to put a spotlight on civic government and the people who make it all happen at the local level. Today, we're welcoming Sabine Matheson. Sabine is a senior public affairs practitioner, and she's currently a partner and general counsel for Strategy Corps. Welcome, Sabine. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Sabine, we recently chatted with you at the CAMA conference about Ontario's strong mayor legislation, and that's a separate episode, so I hope folks will tune in for that. Now, though, we're happy to have you with us for a special conversation as we honor Pride Month. So. Maybe we could begin by just having you share your personal journey of transition and what it is that led you to make that decision. Well, you know, it's really nice to be asked. I was 56 years old when I decided I was going to transition. But, you know, in case people are wondering when you start to know, I knew something was up when I was a child. It's funny, I remember I was watching Star Trek because, you know, there's no cure for nerdiness and that's been a constant theme for my whole life. And I remember there was an ad that came on for Hershey's chocolate bars. And I remember they showed this kid who must have been very good at sports because I think he threw a strikeout and then I think he was sliding into home plate and his parents probably in breach of all normal codes of etiquette, ran out onto the field and gave him a chocolate bar. And I remember having this feeling, well, if that's what it takes to succeed as a male, I'm totally screwed. It's great to have that sort of thought that you're likely to be a failure when you're seven years old because of the the definition of who you have to be. And it wasn't like I was somebody who played with dolls or something like that. And, you know, I was really good at hiding who I was. But looking back at myself, I sort of recall how tragic it is. I remember being very stressed about course selection for grade nine, because I thought maybe if I take industrial arts, I can hide the fact that I'm not really male for a few more years. And so I did, I took industrial arts and I'm really glad I took industrial arts. But I remember thinking there might be something magical about knowing how to fix a lawnmower engine in terms of being persuasive about one's masculinity. But back in those days, there were no real transgender icons that you could identify with. Like if you were going to look for transgender representation on television in the early 70s, it was probably a sex worker in a TV criminal. There'd be some smart mouth trans woman that Kojak or Beretta would go and talk to. And they would say, well, if you're looking for the guy who murdered that girl, it's probably so-and-so. And they'd be very strong. And by the next scene, they'd be dead because the thug would have seen them. And so not a really optimistic path forward for somebody who was thinking about what to do, or they'd just be subject to ridicule. 
And so I just kind of got on with my life. And, you know, I'm not a person who is really into ridicule or what have you. But in my 30s, the internet was the great connector of people. And so while there's many unfortunate things about the digital world, it certainly made it easy for a lot of communities to find each other. And I remember reading something and just saying, oh, 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 that's what it is. It, and once you figure it out, it's one of those things you can't unfigure. Yeah. But by then I was parent of a young child and I wasn't necessarily going to do anything about it. But I was very fortunate to live with a woman who was prepared to pretend that she had ceased being a lesbian and that she had moved in with me. And so people thought, oh, well, look at John. He's got this ex-lesbian. But it was actually more like a Agatha Christie novel. It was kind of like, oh, no, she wasn't an ex-lesbian. John wasn't really John. John was a trans woman. And so we were together that way for a long time. And one thing led to another, and it became possible for me to say, well, I don't really have to be stuck anymore. And a big part of that was the government improving its access. It used to be that the gatekeeper function was really quite brutal. And I think I first consulted various medical professionals probably in 2011 or 2010, but back then... It was two or three year waiting list to get in, to go see somebody and then a multi-year process. And so I was in a stable place. I had somebody who supported me at home. I didn't need to act rashly. And the process was so dehumanizing that it wasn't really very inviting, but they made changes that dramatically improved the access. And around that time, there were changes in my life that made it possible. And it was 2019 that I decided to start, and I would have come out sooner, but for COVID. It's amazing how many excuses you can come up with. Oh, you know, I'm a partner in a firm, and COVID's coming, and everybody's scared about how COVID's going to affect business. I don't want to further destabilize. You don't know how you're going to be accepted. But finally, 2021 came along, and I started the process for approval for the surgical transition. And that happened almost exactly a year ago in May of 2022 at a clinic in Montreal, which is just a fabulous place. It's kind of a shame that Ontario has only recently established a place for surgical interventions of this kind. And it's a women's college hospital and it's absolutely a fabulous program, but it hasn't scaled up yet. So you kind of have a choice of a very long waiting list in Ontario or making the trek to Montreal or other places, the best thing that you can say is that the funding is there and there's no issues with that. But I think it would be good for the people of Ontario if you could do it closer to home. So maybe you can tell us a little bit, Sabine, about your experience when you reintroduced yourself to the municipal sector. And were there things that surprised you and or disappointed you about that? So I'll tell you the story. Uh, you can't assume that just because you've met one trans person that you know how any of the rest of us think, because it's a very individualized experience. And please don't think that I think if there's any trans people out there that I, I think my experience you know, is likely to in any way mimic yours, because the one thing I've learned for sure is that everybody's different. And when I was sitting there in 2022, 
I hadn't yet decided how openly I was going to be about my transition. Because if you think about it, what do you call a 56-year-old guy in a work environment who starts saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to go have surgery on my whatever, right? Like you call them the accused. It's very difficult to start having intimate conversations about stuff. And you say, well, if I can't talk about it, and of course you can, but if it's a risk to talk about it and you think, well, is it anybody's business? And you think, well, there's all sorts of rules that say no one should inquire as to what a trans person has done. So maybe I shouldn't really be talking about it. And so I had sort of one vision of how I might proceed where I'd be rather stealth about it. I would go align my body with who I was, but why tell the world about it? You know, just run out the clock. It's really your prerogative to deal with it however you want, yeah, right? Exactly. And but not necessarily tell the world. And so that was one vision. And then there was another vision that was urged upon me by my girlfriend. And she said, you know, you've got so much white male privilege that you're going to be coming to being a trans person with a lot more capacity to do good. And honestly, if what you do is shut up about it, then you're hogging that for yourself. You're not doing any good with that. And I will tell you the absolute truth. I was sitting by myself on a Friday watching CNN coverage of the invasion of Ukraine. And I'd just seen Vladimir Zelensky talking about how there were death squads coming to kill him and his wife. And I thought, God, that's appalling. And then the next item was about Governor Abbott in Texas putting out legislation that would have been worthy of the Nazi regime in oh. 1936 or something, yeah. making it illegal for physicians or other sort of practitioners who interface with children to provide any trans supportive care, and in fact, making it mandatory to rat them out so that the kids could be taken away from their parents and there could be sanctions of all sorts on the physicians or on the social workers or on teachers who provided any support to the kids. And I thought, wait a minute, my girlfriend's right. That is awful. And if Vladimir Zelensky's got to worry about death squads, what do I have to worry about Twitter? This has to be spoken against. If somebody who's been a member of the conservative party since she, now she, was nine years old and who knows much of the Ontario cabinet by the first name and pretty much every mayor in Ontario one way or another, first degree or second degree or separation and most of the CAOs in Ontario, if I'm not prepared to stand up and do something, who is, right? And so that was when I said, you know what? The heck with it. I'm just going to go big. And so you asked, how did I come out? Well, I came out at the AMO conference. It was like roll Operation Rolling Thunder. Uh, we started for a bunch of uh, conferences I had to miss where I'd been invited to speak because my surgery came. And I sent these messages that sort of uh, where people who were speaking on my behalf read them aloud. So I started seeding the ground and then I showed up at AMO. I was going to show up in high heels, but I realized that the wisdom of Janice Baker and others is don't show up to an AMO conference in high heels. And I thought, well, if you want to live as long as Hazel McCallion, you better not do that. But what I did do was I put out a LinkedIn post on the Saturday and I showed up to an Ontario big city mayor meeting on the Sunday and I spoke at the AMO conference to the plenary on the Monday. 
And by then it was pretty tough to find anybody in the municipal sector who didn't know. Now I told my family and I, my work colleagues, they all knew, but I kind of told everybody in the municipal sector all at once. And it was honestly, it was exactly the right way to do it because what I believe I've found is like, I can't get into the heads of people who are transphobic, but I think it might be the idea that you're trying to pull something over, that you're trying to fool them, you know, that that is something that is somewhat off-putting. And for anybody who doesn't know me, I'm six foot two and 220 pounds, right? And I don't wear makeup. And at best, I do a sort of any hall shabby chic. And you're wearing it well. <laughs> you are wearing it well. well. I appreciate you saying that. But the truth is, I sort of get multiple reactions from people, like with the long hair. So like, are you... Uh, are you in some Pink Floyd tribute band or something? And if it suits people to think that, well, in fact, I am. I do sing in a blues band and we do, do Pink Floyd. And for years, that was my cover, was the hair was getting longer. But people thought it was COVID or they said, oh, yeah, right, you're a musician. But really, it was the combination of sort of trying to come out in a way that was authentic to me and recognizing that, you know what, I'm not trying to hide anything. And if you don't mind the Civil War references or the Star Trek quotes, like none of that changes because, as I said in my announcement, there's no known cure for nerdiness, right? All that stays the same. It's just you're aligning yourself with who you really are, yeah. which is why I would say it should really not be threatening to people because it's not that we're trying to get away with something or be something that we're not. It's that we're trying to align ourselves with who we are. And to stop having to lie about it. And so actually it is an alignment with a truth. It's not like drag, which is dressing up to be something you're not. And it's funny because a lot of people say, oh, are you willing to drag? I don't wish drag performers any ill, but that's the exact opposite of me. I don't, I don't dress up like a woman to pretend I'm a woman. I am a woman and I can barely dress up. Like I don't sit around making TikTok videos. Same, and makeup same. Videos. <laughs> and, Me neither. I, I, I'm a failure at that, but, but boy, does it ever feel to be in my right body. It feels great. Yeah. And, and uh, to have waited 56 years for that, I went up to Peter Bethlen Falvey, the Minister of Finance in Ontario, gave him a great big hug and said, thank you. Actually, that's not true. I went up to him and said, thank you. He gave me a great big hug. And he said, you know what? Nobody ever says thank you to the Minister of Finance. So that's something for all of you to remember in the municipal sector is that your finance ministers are probably not feeling the love as much as they want. But, but boy, did I ever appreciate it. And I'll tell you something else. There was original chair, and I won't say which one because I don't think he'd be embarrassed. And he probably deserves the credit, but I don't want to identify him. But I had told his CAO, and I'd been working for them for 20 years. I have been around for a bit. And they said, oh, well, you know, John wanted us to know that he was transitioning and he was hoping that it wouldn't cause any concerns. But you know, anyway, his reaction was, well, I guess we all have to understand that there never was a John. There was always Sabine. Mm. And that up to now... She hasn't felt comfortable sharing that, but that now that she is, I'm really looking forward to getting to know Sabine. And if anybody gives her any trouble about her change, then they're going to have to answer to me 
And they should remember that I'm an ex-hockey player. <laughs> That's very isn't impactful. That, wow. Isn't that incredible? Huh? Yeah. It's very nice. Very nice. Now, you've kind of alluded a little bit to your position, kind of high profile. And because of that and your own experiences, you feel some personal responsibility to make the path easier for others. Why is that important to you? When I was at the clinic, they do like 10 surgeries on the Monday and Tuesday. A surgical day is Monday and Tuesday. And I don't want to guess and I don't want to pry, but I'm going to guess that a number of the people who were there when I was there were sex workers. And it's probably not because of choice, right? These are people who, this is how they can earn a living. And if you look at just about every demographic statistic that applies to trans people, they're mostly demographics that you do not wish to be in. And, you know, you spend your life with a lot of white male privilege, and then you get in the elevator and press the down button, and how bad can it be for me? I'm a partner in a very successful firm. I found my own home. I have a supportive family. I've got 25 years of strategy corp, 35 years of professional reputation. What if you're 17, your parents have kicked you out? It, these people don't deserve this. And I was getting ready to give a presentation on the law. I'm a lawyer still, and I'm an in-house counsel at Strategic Corp. I was getting ready to give a presentation to a law firm on transgender issues. And then when I did the first draft, it said, well, you know, there's over 350 pieces of legislation in various state legislatures in the United States that have anti-transgender measures in it. Well, I've had to adjust it twice because the number is 550 now. Oh 550 pieces of legislation, each one more crappy and mean-spirited than the next. And the thing that's so awful about it is I'm a political strategist, right? And so I know what these things are. They're dog whistle politics. They pick on really unfortunate extreme circumstances that frankly are not relevant to 98% of the transgender experience. And they're designed to create a kind of political barroom brawl that is frankly about the erosion of all sorts of minority rights, not just trans rights, but it's aimed every bit as much at other members of the LGBTQ community. It's aimed at indigenous people. It's frankly aimed at women. It's aimed at just about anybody who gets dismissed as being woke. And it's so funny because I worked in the Mike Harris government. Now, I'm very happy to say I have always been a progressive conservative. I would have been called a red Tory by my pals. I was a fiscal conservative, but I don't have a huge backlog of hypocrisy of being part of things that were undermining people's ability to be who they wanted to be. Right? Like I've never been anti into pretty much anything. I don't find any great hypocrisy in being a lifelong red Tory. I just wanted balanced budgets so that we could pay for more services for people. I didn't want to tell people they couldn't have services particularly. I was a Joe Clark conservative. And I worked for Flora McDonald and I worked for Barbara McDougall and the Moroni era. And that's what I, that was what I was all about. But it's just appalling to me that so much of the discourse right now is about picking fights for the sake of picking fights. 
And no offense to anyone from Alberta, but I find it appalling that an MLA said that trans children were akin to feces in food. And my wish for that person is that someday their child will say to them, Mom, how could you have said that about somebody else's child? Because honestly, whatever you think about transgender people, surely you would think that children deserve a chance to express themselves. Like I think of who I was when I was six or seven years old, feeling uh, inadequate because of Hershey's commercials. I mean, I, I didn't have to deal with anybody doing drive-by shootings of that nature. Mm-hmm. And I, that kind of mean-spiritedness. I don't believe it belongs in Canada. I think it's just terrible. When you think of all the positive things that you can do and how much the gift of acceptance, like juxtapose that behavior to that original chair that I mentioned who went out of his way to be kind. And I just don't know for the life of me why you wouldn't choose the one path versus the other. Yeah, and the political climate right now is so divisive. Do you want to expand a little bit on that, Sabine, on how as a political strategist and in your current situation, do you feel like we're rolling rocks uphill with this current political climate? You know, the tactics that have become commonplace are really beneath. You think of some of the politicians who I work for, who we, who you worked for, people who we, we would have known 25 or 30 years ago. Stuff that's commonplace now would not have been contemplated. I can't go out for a walk in the evening without seeing some sticker that says that something should be done to Mr. Trudeau. And it would have been scandalous to be associated with anything so vulgar. And you see people slapping them all over their trucks. I just think the real problem is we have so many important things that we need to do about infrastructure, about services to people, about healthcare, the challenges of being competitive, tragically, the challenges of safety and security in our society, either because of domestic threats and also now tragically because of external ones. The world's becoming a more dangerous place. Dividing amongst ourselves, wasting our resources on unprofitable things when there is so much to be done just feels to me to be a tragic misdirection of human energy Mm -hmm. and are otherwise precious resources. And so I find myself a great supporter of anyone who rises above this and just shaking my head about anybody who is attracted to swim in that particular sewer. It's just so sad. Couldn't agree more. I had this fellow come up to me because a lot of these issues are very complex. A fellow came up to me and he said, I want to know what you think about trans women who compete in sports. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, this wasn't a friendly comment, right? Yeah. And so I said, well, that depends. Are you asking me as a parent of a 20-year-old? Are you asking me as a trans person? Or are you asking me as a municipal policy bulk? And he said, I don't know. And I said, okay. Well, as a parent, I'd be pretty upset about something that wasn't unfair. But I'll tell you something else. I would probably tell my daughter, you know that elite sports is great. But you know that dedicating your life to something where ultimately you're going to lose by one one hundredth of a second 
you're going to lose to somebody who has an advantage over you. And you know something else? Aside from your own personal gain from doing it, the success of being as fast as you can be, you realize that mostly only people are going to pay any attention to you whatsoever when we're competing against the Chinese or the Russians or the Americans. So actually, nobody really cares except you. And you know that the Russians and the Chinese and the Americans are probably, not to be disrespectful of the Americans, but they're probably really good at doing all sorts of things that are right on the edge of being legal. Right. And so, sir, I said to him, if it were your daughter, would you be particularly upset about whether they got beaten by a Canadian trans person at the regionals or the mythical East German swimmer from those days? Because they're going to get beaten by somebody. Now, ask me as a municipal policy wonk what I think. I think we're supposed to be running recreation programs that are all about inclusion. And if you're telling me that you got all this energy for excluding people from your municipal pool, I'm telling you, you should be finding ways to get more people in the pool, either for public health or for public engagement. And if you're asking me as a trans person, well, I'd probably say, just why are you asking? Yes. And it was really interesting because he said, well, I have a son who's a cross-dresser. And I said, a cross-dresser or a trans person? Oh, no. No, he's not a cross-dresser. He got over it. I said, really? How do you know? He said, oh, he's 51. I said, oh, I'm 56. Not out of the woods yet. He says, oh, well, he has three kids. I said, I got one. And he was turning a shade of white. And I said, look, it doesn't matter, right? Because if he is trans, then you're going to love him. And if he's not trans, then you're going to love him. But he may not like you telling strangers that he's a crossdresser. And you might want to keep that quiet. But if what you want to do is be supportive of him for who he is, then why don't you just get on with doing that? Because you seem like a pretty nice guy. And by the way, instead of giving trans people grief, why don't you say, hey, how could we get more trans people engaged in municipal recreation programs? And I'll tell you, have change rooms where they feel safe. Because, man, does it ever bug me. There's a couple of things that I've learned. One is that the essence of female oppression starts with the lack of pockets. Man, is it ever a yeah. pain in the neck not having pockets? Yeah. And then the second thing that I would not have wished for myself is the inability to find a safe washroom. And you see, a lot of people think, J.K. Rowling seems to think, you know, the, mm. our friend who wrote the Harry Potter series, she seems to think that the primary purpose for going in and getting your body surgically altered is so that you can sit around leering in ladies' washrooms. Yeah. It's kind and, of an extreme approach, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what exactly are you going to do in that ladies' washroom after you've had your body surgically altered? Like, perhaps that is something that she has not considered. But I don't spend all my time, honestly, worrying about how I can get access to, like, behind the velvet rope of the ladies' room. I actually spend all my time, because I'm an empathetic human being, being terrified that I'm accidentally going to scare somebody who doesn't think that I'm a transgender woman, but who thinks that I'm a bassist in a Pink Floyd tribute pair. Because I'm six foot two and 220 pounds. And I don't necessarily, if you're taking counsel of your fears, well, you know, I don't know what I look like. I'm femme enough, but, you know, I wear my little transgender bracelets, the pink, blue, and white is the dead giveaway. 
But are they going to notice that if they're scared, if they see some six foot two person who they think is a dude from a Pink Floyd tribute band? No, they're going to be scared. And it's not fears based in you being trans. It's, it's, it's fears true. of but the I, unknown. And I don't yeah. want to scare anybody. Yeah. So ban, do I ever like single stall washrooms? 100%. We all need them. Yes, we do. So what are some other things that municipalities should be thinking about? Like if we're talking to the municipal sector. Look, I actually want to start a bit of a program or project to actually inquire. Because the one thing I know for sure is that there's going to be all kinds of directors of social services and of recreation and of other things that have come up with specific things that they've found in one of the little projects that I want to work on is create a place that can be a bit of a clearinghouse for best practices for this. So the quick answer is, I don't know enough about what's going on yet, but I bet there's all kinds of cool things. But some sorts of examples, I think, are this. One, I have a membership in the Boulevard Club, and I was kind of annoyed with the Boulevard Club because when I told them, surprise, you've got a transgender member, it's a tennis and swimming club, yeah. right? It took them five months to figure out where I should change. And it really hurt my feelings. Yeah. And you know what? I didn't make a complaint about them. I'm not that kind of person. I just kept calling and saying, have you figured it out yet? And to their credit, they called in somebody to consult with, and it took forever. But it's a volunteer board, so it's going to take what it takes. And so what? I was the first. But the point is, it really hurt my feelings. And so I think one thing is proactively put in place policies that can accommodate people. Don't make them go bang down the door. Like trans people are a thing. We know that now because of the last census. And if you think it's whatever the average number is, there's way more under the age of 20 than there are my age, because the only inspiration you could get for realizing what you were was watching people who are going to be dead in the next scene on Kojak episodes. Whereas now, I think it's not that there's some big cultural trend of monkey see, monkey do going on. It's that we've always been there, but you can actually see people that you can identify with. And so they're there. So put in place the policies that can, that can accommodate them the day they show up. And whether that's in different supports for housing, whether it's in some trans people are going to get in trouble with the law. So figure out what you're going to do with them in terms of incarceration. Figure out what you're going to do with them uh, in terms of how to make sure that people know how to deal with their pronouns and how to deal with their names. I'm 56. I can't hide the facts that I was John Matheson for so many years. If you're 17, you don't have that kind of history. And a lot of those people want to change and transition right away. And so their experience is very different from mine. And they don't stand on the accumulated privilege, but they don't stand on a history that traps them in a place and they can move on with their identity. And I think anything that you can do that makes people feel welcome, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the pride crosswalks. All your ECDEV officers, you should know that anytime I go to a place that's got a pride crosswalk, I'm way more inclined to spend money. You know, it makes me feel like I'm welcome because if you make a point of making me welcome, having your dual trans flag, and how about not banning trans flags? Like I'm looking at you, Norwich Township. 
you know, I get it. Look, I understand when you say, oh, well, trans people aren't special. So why should they get all this special stuff? So that is a thought pattern. And when I was 14, I remember having the same thought pattern about Quebec. Quebec isn't special. Why do they get all this special <laughs> stuff? They're not a distinct society. Why are they always complaining? Why do they get to have the FLQ? Why don't we have an FLO in Ontario? Well, because it would be a goofy sounding name. No one's scared of the flow. But the <laughs> point is, it's a very 14-year-old response. It's a much more mature response, which I think I hit maybe when the time I was 16 or 17, which to say, okay, I get it. There's some grievances here, which we really need to think through. And there's some accommodation here, which we really need to think through. And, you know, we don't have 550 pieces of hostile legislation in Ontario or anywhere yet in Canada. But what we do have is generations of it being okay to mock trans people. And a big, scary, self-confident person like me was thinking about, oh, well, maybe I'll just hide and not bother because I don't want to bother anyone. But that moment of watching Zelensky's courage and Governor Abbott's cruelty made me think, we all read these stories about what happened in civil rights days in the 60s or the Weimar Republic in the 30s or name whatever place where you ask yourself, what would I have done if things were going bad? And it's not so difficult to just sort of stand up and do the right thing. I can't make myself South Asian to know how it is to be South Asian. And I can't make myself a BIPOC. I can't make myself indigenous. But I did just make myself trans. And so I know what it is to have people think that I'm open season for being humiliated. If you don't believe me, look at my Twitter feed. And I know people who are far more activists than me, they go into scarier Twitter feeds than I do. It's all very genteel talking to a lot of municipal administrators. You people are typically the people who enforce the codes that keep people safe, as opposed to spreading the vile stories that make people at risk. But I, I have suddenly become a subject of derision. And I just don't accept it. But the funny thing is, I never used to worry about whether I was going to have my house be vandalized, or if I was going to have my tires slashed, or if I was going to get beaten up walking home. And you know what? It's on the mind of every single trans person you've ever met. That's a vulnerability. And we see it anytime. There's a perceived threat to what is uh, accepted or normal by certain circles of people. Women in positions of power often experience this too. So if there's a couple of things, big things, obviously we need to be proactive about making change. And what do you need people to do as allies? Well, the municipal sector has been great to me. I haven't had a bad experience in the municipal sector. And I have presented uh, since the last year, 30 or 40 municipal councils, probably. Uh, I've presented to Ontario big city mayors, the mayors and regional chairs of Ontario and to AMO. And I have yet to have a bad experience through the municipal world. And I just want to say it wasn't just that one 
regional chair, there have been so many who've been so great. And so firstly, I think the sector needs to understand that it's on the right track because I don't know what it would have been like for me 10 years ago. So I think the sector already is being really good allies. Let's talk about land acknowledgements for a minute in the whole question of Indigenous relations. It's something that we do a lot. We always just have to remember that it means something. And what you just said, how do we be good allies? I think it's just always remember that it means something. The, the codes of conduct, they're not just words. It means something behind every human interaction. There's somebody you can make their day by just accepting them for who they are. And you've got so much power to do so much good that honestly, it should be such a fabulous reward cycle. You behave well, you do something great for somebody, you bring such a smile to them. It's going to make you feel good. For the stuff that's not happening yet, I think it's all the proactive policy that you can use so that you don't force people into the situation of having to demand things that honestly the Human Rights Code said they should have gotten since 2014. It's not in my nature to be really annoying or really, I don't like complaining about stuff, but you step on my toe long enough, I'm going to be drafting things that are going to be invoking section whatever. And don't make people do that. It's daffy. It's not good. And then just recognize that allyship should be mutual. And like trans people aren't just demandeur in this space. They've got to also be people who, you know, the recognizing the intersectionalities, we should be helping other people too. I think it's fine to put expectations on trans people to be supportive of other people, just like trans people put expectations on them, because it's about the interconnecting bonds that we have. It's about the mutual responsibilities. And some are going to have a greater capacity to be generous than others. But what we need to build is everybody's broad shoulders so that everybody can make a contribution to making it better. And, you know, that may sound very kumbaya, but honestly, what else is there? It's all we have. We're all just walking each other home. Yeah, that's so true. Thank you, Sabine. This has been a very powerful story, and we hope it'll contribute to education and awareness about experience of transgender individuals within the municipal sector and without. And we hope it'll inspire listeners to advocate for equality and celebrate diversity and work towards building communities that embrace and uplift all individuals. And thank you for sharing that with us. Well, that's so well said, Anna. And I just add my advice to anybody who might be listening who is trans, who hasn't come out yet. I would say if you're lucky enough to be associated with the municipal sector, I would say if it's your path, don't be frightened of taking it. There's so much more from following the path than there is from hiding from it. And I'm very glad that I made the choice that I did. And I put a lot of people in the sector to the test and none of them have let me down. And what a nice thing to be able to say. Wonderful, truly wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Sabine. Thanks for joining us in the Local Gov Cafe. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a minute to share on social media or tell a friend. And we hope you'll join us next time as we welcome our next guest. You won't want to miss it.